bulletin, use the, if you don't normally use the outline, you may want to use it. Uh, I, I gave you a lot because I may not even be able to get through it. Uh, because today will be the last day that we cover this. I, I will say the, the title of the message is Answering the Hard Questions. And I think this has probably been one of the hardest series I've had to do because of the sensitive nature of the topic. But again, it's critical that we understand the topic. It's critical that we respond to it in a biblical way. I think there's a lot of bad information out there, misinformation, ungodly thinking, even among Christians on what we should do. So again, I trust that you would have your outline. I'm going to be mentioning a number of books uh, because I'm going to be quoting from a few. And just so you know, uh, the library... Uh, Phyllis has taken and pulled some of the best books on this subject, and they're right in the library, right on the desk as you walk in. So if, uh, if there's a book that you said, boy, I'd like to have more information on, I'd encourage you to go there, check it out. We have a wonderful library. We haven't said much about it, but in the next few years, I hope to keep talking about it, because we've gone through the library and basically gotten rid of the stuff that really wouldn't help your Christian growth. And left the stuff that would and also uh, fortified it with more. And uh, again, it's very, very good. And also to know there's also fiction there as well as nonfiction. We haven't thrown away all that. But the thing is, is it's very good stuff, so avail yourself. David Jeremiah tells the story. Back in the 1500s, workers in South Mexico, southern Mexico built a church. Actually, it was 1564 thinking that the area would be heavily populated. Unfortunately, a plague devastated the entire region and, a church, and the church was abandoned. In 1966, a dam was built and the resulting lake covered the building and hid it from view. Recently, a drought caused the water levels to drop and the church reappeared out of the water like a revitalized shrine. Soon, however, the waters will rise again and the church again will disappear beneath the murky waters. And then Dr. Jeremiah writes, the true church of Jesus Christ will never be overwhelmed by the world. The waters may swirl around us, but the Lord has promised to build his church and to keep it strong until he returns. One thing must be avoided at all costs, though. We must not let the world seep into the church. When we let the world dilute our gospel and water down our values and our convictions, we'll soon disappear from sight. See, we have to be wholly committed to the Word of God. And as we approach this subject, we need to be wholly committed to what the Word of God says about homosexuality. Otherwise, we can allow the, ch- uh, the, the culture to seep into the church, and we don't want to do that. I like what A.B. Simpson says, the chief danger of the church today is that it is trying to get on the same side as the world instead of trying to turn the world upside down. We almost welcome it. Now, the thing is, we need to make sure that we have a solid footing on the Word of God. And last week I read to you a, an author, a, a, a theologian, a theologian that was sympathetic to homosexuality and basically saying this, I know what the Bible says, but we're going to reject it. And again, I want to bring up this picture, the chart, if you will. So, um, because again, this is the, uh, the, the idea of this is this, and, and this is how it would be explained 
Uh, I experience it, therefore I am. <laughs> I experience, experience becomes the controlling factor. This is what your life should look like right here. This is the biblical. So you might want to even put on there, biblical. <laughs> this is not the biblical. This is my experiences determines what I worship, what I want, what I desire, what's going to control me. And the word of God hopefully will go along with that. And if it doesn't, I reject it. Here, the Word of God is the first, the starting point, the priority. Therefore, it determines what I worship and what I want and what I desire. And if I'm not worshiping and wanting what the Word of God says, what do I do? I repent and I change directions, which then determines my thoughts, feelings, and choices. Again, I want you to get that in your mind because that's what's happening over here to a lot of Christians. At least people who say they're Christians. I'm not talking people who say they're Christians that are homosexuals. I'm saying people who say you can accept it. And they'll say it this way. Because that's what they've experienced. That's their identity. That's their orientation. That is how God has made them. And we're going to answer a couple of those things. The only thing I want you to see is this. On this one right here, as the man, as, uh, who's the guy? Peter Hubbard says this. He says, the word of God does not come into direct contact with the heart. You see how that works? See, here the word of God is controlling the heart, influencing the heart. It's directing the heart. Here, the experiences have been been had, the experiences, they've lived it. This is what I'm worshiping. And now it's just basically this, informing the word of God. Now, if God agrees with me, I'll go in that direction. If God disagrees with me in his word, then I'm going to disagree with God. So you want to have this type of thinking. The Word of God is what directs us. So, the Word of God is present, but demoted. The heart critiques the Scriptures rather than the Scriptures critiquing the heart. Passages that contradict the thoughts and intentions of the heart must be reinterpreted or ignored. Why? Because in this one, experience reigns. So you hear comments like, I've always felt different. You know, homosexual, I've always felt this way. Uh, God would not have given me these desires if he didn't want me to satisfy them. I know lots of gays and lesbians who love God and live in, commit, in a committed relationship with him. Or, if Christians don't accept me as I am, they must be angry or fearful. See, though, because why? Experience reigns. So I just ask you this question. In your own personal life, which of these? By the way, you may not be homosexual. But a lot of Christians live over here. But you don't, I mean, I've been in counseling with married couples, and the one wants to leave the other, and the person will say something like, but you don't understand my situation. What are they saying? You don't understand my experience. I don't care what the Word of God says. The Word of God doesn't understand my wife. I mean, would you want to live with her? You know, well, no, that's not the issue. The issue is, who's controlling you? Is it your experience, or is it the Word of God? So... A very, very important starting point as we look at these eight hard questions. By the way, eight hard questions that will lead into other questions. I can't be thorough. I wish I could. It'd take three or four weeks to be thorough. But this is the foundation. Okay, this is the foundation. (coughs) First question. And some of these we looked at somewhat. I just want to shoot through them. But the first question is this. Is homosexual sin worse than any other sin? Well, again, James 2.10 says that Uh, Any sin breaks the law. All sin condemns. It only takes one sin to condemn you to hell forever. However, actually, 
we understand total depravity, we are soaked, our, our very beings are soaked as we're in sin. I mean, we, we are sinners. But homosexuality sin is a different type of sin. Again, homosexuals are not a particular separate class of sinners. I want to keep saying that. What I'm saying by that is this. They are not outside the gospel. The same gospel that saves a person that's found in heterosexual sin can save a person found in homosexual sin, right? They're not different sins. The gospel saves. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1. But it is true that homosexual acts are a particular class of sinful acts because according to Romans 1, it says it's against nature. Actually, in an ABF class, um, uh, Benny brought up, and I'm glad he said it because I've I've read so many times where people will say, well, isn't gluttony the same as homosexuality? They're both sins. And and, and I was telling the class a a few months ago, a month ago, maybe a little longer, I was really convicted of gluttony. See, gluttony is not so much eating too much. Gluttony is thinking about food all the time. See, it becomes an idol of the heart. Uh, you may get overweight by it and you may not. But the point is, is gluttony is when you like, go to the refrigerator, open the door, and you're not even hungry. Gluttony is eating at late at night when you're not even hungry. You just have to have a taste. You just want to... See, food can control the heart. That's gluttony. Now, are they both sins? Yes. But let's, let's, let's analyze this for a moment. The problem with food is the fact that food itself is bad, right? No, 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 no. Ecclesiastes talks about the food is good. Enjoy life. And we went through a lot of this, so uh, be patient with me, ABF class, if you, because I want to make sure, because this answers this question. Okay, food is good. What's the problem? Idol of the heart. Idol of the heart. I've got to change how I look at food. God is God. Food isn't. Okay, so food isn't the issue. It's what I have done to make it a ruling thing. See, a good, I love Paul Tripp when he says this. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. That's always true. That's true in anything that you do. You might like education, but if it becomes a ruling thing, it's a bad thing. You may like food. You may like sex. Well, I'll you. I mean, if you're married. Uh, but, the, uh, but you may like um, um, relationship, a relationship. You might love your kids. You like your kids, right? That's great, but if they become a ruling thing, it's a bad thing, right? It's a bad thing when it's a ruling thing. So food is a good thing, but it becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Hey, let's look, let's look at this subject of homosexuality. Is same-sex marriage ever good? No. Do you see how those are different? Those are night and day. Sure, they're both sins. But one says, one God counsels, listen, let me be God and enjoy the food. Here, he says, Repent. And so it's totally different. Don't, you, don't ever allow someone to use that argument. You need to shoot it right down. Food is good, just don't let it be a ruling thing. Homosexual sin is always wrong. It needs to be repented of. So, is homosexual sin worse than other sins? Again, it's a yes and no. I mean, it damns you, but it's unnatural, it's different. Again, some sins are of greater in ambition, context, and consequence, as Al Mohler said. And I think I've left that in your outline. How about this? Number two, can a committed homosexual be a Christian? Now, the key word is committed. Remember, our key verse is 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And by the way, when, he, when he's saying the unrighteous, he uses more than just sexual sins. Uh, he, he names a number of sins, and some of the sins 
you might even say, well, I'm caught in that particular sin. Let me see. Let me get the list for you. He says fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals. Those are all sexual sins. But then he goes in and says thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying this. Your identity can't be that. In other words, if you say this, I want Christ, but I will not give up that sin, whether it's covetousness or some type of sexual sin, I will not. No, he can't be, you can't be a Christian if you reject and trample on the Lordship of Christ. Because what does Jesus say? If you want to be one of my disciples, what do you have to do? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and what? Follow me. Now, I did not say this. That you could have a Christian who struggles with homosexual same-sex feelings. No, you could have someone who struggles. Just like you have someone that's a Christian that struggles with worry and struggles with fear and struggles with other lusts and struggles with selfishness and struggles with selfish ambitions. But again, a true Christian is one who has, has um, uh, uh, bent to the lordship of Christ. Not perfectly, that's what sin is all about. We sin because at that moment we're not bending. But to say, I will not, and it is my identity, and it's my orientation, and this is who I am, and I have given myself to it. You have to, you have to break, Jesus Christ has to break that in the person's life before they can come to Christ. So again... Uh, we are not saying, like I said last week, that we are morally superior. We are just people who have been broken and received Christ for forgiveness of sin. And again, we looked at that. How about the third very important question? For the sake of our holiness, should we stay away from homosexuals? Now again, if you're in 1 Corinthians 6, go over to verse 5, because I want you to make sure we see this. See, we should be ministering to the ungodly world, not moving away from them. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Paul writing to a very ungodly church, right? I mean, they were full of factions and everything else. Proud, arrogant, (coughs) immoral. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the the sexually immoral people of the world. I'm not talking about the world here, guys. Paul's saying, listen, I'm not telling you to stay away from the people of the world. I mean, if, if that was the case... The immoral people of the world are with the covetous, extortioners, idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. By the way, if you just hold your finger in verse 9, just go right over to verse 1 of that same chapter. He's talking about the man, you know, it says the man has his father's wife. See, this was the point of the the passage. The, The Christians were allowing immorality within the church. A man who claimed himself to be a Christian, part of that body of believers in the Corinthian church, was living in open, flagrant, unrepentant immorality, and they didn't do anything about it. And he said, you know, it's like leaven. It just seeps in. It's going to affect the entire church. It's a dishonor to the glory of Christ and the holiness of God. But he says, listen, I'm not telling you to separate yourself from the world. Sometimes Christians, I think, we we read it that way. I mean, if we really want to be holy people, we've got to stay away from them. 
This last week, uh, Paul Tripp, <laughs> I've mentioned Paul Tripp like four or five times today. He's, he's kind of had a big impact in the, this last few months in my life. But he wrote an article in his little web there called The Christian Ghetto. The Christian Ghetto. He starts out in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world, and a city that is on a, on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but a, on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. And so then he says, are we living, though, in a Christian ghetto? Now, do you remember the ghettos of World War II, the Warsaw Ghetto? It's where they took all the Jews and put them in one location and basically said, you have to stay there through walls and barbed wire fences and guards and dogs. But the idea was this. They were, they were trapped there, okay? They were trapped. And, and the point is, sometimes we get trapped Within Christianity, now, now, now we've got to be careful, is fellowship critical in our Christian life? Yes, we need connection. We need community. So I want to say that first. We need, we des- some of you are desperate in need of community, and you're not getting it. You maybe come here on a Sunday, but then you don't have any connection with Christians the rest of the week. That, that is detrimental to your Christian health. Because many times, even the passages in the, in the New Testament that talk about Christian growth are in the plural, i.e., let's put it in reality, real terms. I need Charlie Edgecombe in my life, and he needs me, okay? We need each other because we're part of the same body. I need Billy. I need Donna, right? I mean, I need you people in my life. You need me in your... Why? I mean, let me just take it from a, 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 just a, a spiritual gift point of view. What have I learned from Donna Ryan? To be very focused in my conversation with people. Look them in the eye and ask them the hard question. (laughs) Okay? If I'm going to be effective, I need to do that. I think of Cindy Frazier. You know what I've learned from her? The gift of mercy. The gift of mercy. See, their giftedness has helped me understand both God and how I minister. Do you get the point? You get the point? You know, so we have to have these... um, types of people. I mean, we need each other. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we go to the extreme. We, we come into the Christian ghetto, and he asks these questions. Look at the average, your average week. How is your time consumed? How many hours do you spend participating in worship services, small groups, men's, a women's ministry, youth ministry, children's ministry? What about your friends? Outside of the, the, the scheduled ministries, how many hours do you spend with other Christians in social settings? Is it natural for you to gravitate towards a believer or a non-believer? Well, I would hope a believer. But the question is, do we have any light? Are we any salt to the unsaved world? We have the light. We have the light. Now again, he says, let me pause. The goal of this piece is not to discourage you from participating in ministries, nor to discourage you from spending time with fellow believers. And by the way, I'm really going to say that hard. Many of you, we need each other. I look so much forward. Uh, we have a wonderful group of, in neighborhood home group. I look so forward to care group. Okay. I mean, we had a cancer this last week because of snow. But I'll tell you what, I love connection. But maybe I'm not, maybe my light is not as bright to the unsaved as it could be. Maybe I'm living in that Christian ghetto. Maybe I don't have a gospel ambition that the gospel is powerful and it's powerful to change. 
And you might be saying this to me, John, okay, I get it. I need to be a light. I need to be that salt. I need to reach out to my neighbor. I don't have enough time. And now you're telling me, what do I exchange the getting together in my care group and the care and concern for other Christians? And should I give that up? No, I I would say this. Look at the rest of your day. Like I notice in my life at times, I'll give you media. Turn the TV on. Boy, it's 7 o'clock. Now it's 11.30. Now I'm tired. I mean, I, I mean, could we waste time in front of a TV? And internet and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not, I am not advocating giving up something that God says is absolutely necessary in your Christian life. That's community. Other Christians. But I am saying this. In my life, in our lives, we say, you know what, wait a second here, maybe I'm wasting a whole lot of other time in other areas that need to be rescued. Why? So I can be a light and salt to the world around me. See, it might be, that's the sacrifice we need to make. But are you living in a Christian ghetto? I know as a pastor, as a leader, sometimes I've been satisfied with that. In my life and other people's. We've got to get out of that ghetto. You know, if you're living there because you've got the light. See, <clears throat> We do, we do not move away from the entrapped. We move towards the mission field. And they're not the enemy. They are not the enemy. If anything is five weeks is, has really been impressing upon me, John, do not look at people caught in sin as the enemy. They're not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. They're the ones that are the mission field. They need the help. And I need to be the light. And we need to be the salt to them. So... Now, let me, ask, let me answer another question. Though. Should Christian parents allow their children to play at homes of children who have parents in same-sex union? So should I let my little Johnny, or little Colton, or not little, he's 16 drives. Can you believe that? Wow. That's a change in my life right there. My youngest is 16 years old. Um, but would it be acceptable to play... You know, and go have a have a close friend that has two mommies or two daddies. You know, sometimes our thinking has gone this way. Real and authentic friendship with the unsaved is going to compromise our belief of thinking the sinfulness of sin is true. In other words, we don't do this because if we associate with them, then we're not really distinguishing the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin, you know. Like we can't get too close. You know, things have been preached over the years. Or to say in a positive, biblical faithfulness, or let me say in one more negative. Biblical faithfulness does not require us to separate from anyone involved in public sin. Let me say that again. Biblical faithfulness does not require me or you to separate from anyone involved in a public sin. Just because I'm associated with someone doesn't mean that I'm not biblically faithful. I think sometimes that message gets out that way, though. Like somehow, if I'm going to associate, then, then I'm somehow letting my guard down on sin. Now again, it does say, be, uh, come out from, them, uh, from among them and be separate. We are called to be holy. We are called to be pure, right? But we're still called to be light and salt. So now how does that work together? Let's answer the question about the child. The real danger is not letting them play over at that house. That's not the danger. By the way, I'm not saying you would or you wouldn't. Just like if you tell me, would you let your kid play over at a, 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 a child's house where the father happens to be one who produces meth? No. No. I wouldn't allow my child to do that. Not because 
uh, I feel like he might be tainted. It might be that he, he gets into something I don't want him to do, right? I mean, in other words, there's, it's not because it's homosexual, it's because of the danger. But this is the real danger, is when Christian parents do not teach their children a comprehensive biblical understanding of four areas, at least four areas. One is the authority of the scriptures, what we were talking about. See, if they don't know, thus saith the Lord, now they're in danger. Because when they go over there, it's, it's, it's confusing. Okay? So first of all, they need to have a, a good understanding of the uh, Bible's authority. And then a good understanding of sin. And the gospel, which is the solution to sin. And then what the Bible says about sexuality. Now, if you, if you do, yes, this is the Bible. This is, the, this is what sin is, this is the gospel, and this is what the Bible says about sexuality. And let's say that child, I'm not talking a six-year-old, I'm saying, you know, maybe, four, let's say 12, 14, 10, whatever. And they know that, they know what's right, what's wrong, and who said it's right and what, who's wrong, that's God. Well, then, then, then it's your call, depending on, you know, how it plays out. But, I, you know, again, we don't want to just immediately, no! But if you send a child in this, not got that, that foundation, they are going to have all kinds of theological confusion. They are just question after question after question, and they're going to be questioning. They need to go in. I would not allow that to happen unless I felt they were solid, right? Hey, how about number four? So who do we not keep company with? Well, we already answered that. The person who calls himself a brother. That's sinning. See that? Actually, they're the ones that should feel the pressure from the Christians. They're the ones that, even in Matthew 18, get disciplined out of the church and you treat them like a tax gatherer and uh, a publican. What? You treat them as a traitor, not an enemy, as a traitor. Because you say you're Christ, you say you're identified with Him, and yet you are willing to live in open, unrepentant rebellion and sin. No, no, that's the person. The person who says they are a Christian living like that. About number five, should a Christian go to a... Now I am repeating here. Should a Christian go to a same-sex wedding? Now again, three key, three key, uh, key words. They all start with C. First of all, understand if you go to a, a same-sex union... I'm not even going to say a wedding. It isn't a marriage. We do understand that, right? No matter how much the the community or the culture says that this is a marriage in eternity before God, the one who created marriage, he says no. He says no. And, they, and, and the society and the culture can have a hissy fit. Yes, it is! And God says no. It isn't. It's not a marriage. But let's say you were going to go to a same-sex union. First of all, you are celebrating it. Because you're witnessing it. And unfortunately, our society is getting to the point of this, and this is how it's going to hit the church. No dissenting voices will be allowed cultural privilege. That's how it's going to hit us. I don't think it's going to hit us in jail, I don't think. But if you're a dissenting voice, you're not going to be allowed cultural privilege. You're going to be looked down upon, isolated, ostracized, Benefits that the government gives us as far as an institution will probably be extracted over the next few years. You know, maybe it'll take 10, 15 years, I don't know. But the point is, is this. The first thing that you have to consider is, are you celebrating it? And the answer is yes. The second thing you have to do is, 
Are you holding to the commitment to the Lord and his truth? And I believe the answer is no. If you go, you're not doing that. That's what Matthew 10 has to do with. He who loves father and mother more than me. Think about that. He who loves father and mother more than me. What? More than what I stand for is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, that's a very hard thing. Does truth divide? The answer is always yes. Yes, truth divides. And if you want to know where you're going to suffer, some of you are going to suffer right within your own family. Because you're going to take a stand saying, I can't be there, I'm celebrating it. It's not commitment to my Lord. And your spouse is not going to agree. But faithfulness to Jesus Christ demands that you stand with Christ. Because that's lordship. And then finally, the whole conscience issue. Uh, whatever is not of faith is sin, Romans 14. Whatever is faith of faith is not uh, whatever of not is, is not <laughs> whatever is not from faith is sin. <laughs> there, thank you. Now, what would you do though? Let's say you were invited to someone's union and you say, you know, I can't, I just can't. Okay, so they go through the the thing, they go through the ceremony. But I would say this, you know what? I am, I am, I I'm, I still want to be your friend. Um, I want, to, I want to pray for God's blessing on your life. Now, you're not praying for the sin, right? But what is God's blessing on their life, by the way? That we, they would escape. The, you don't have to tell them the whole thing, but you're going to say, hey, I'm still praying for it. And I would have them over to your house. I would definitely befriend them. I mean, they're not the enemy, right? You don't have enemies in your house. They're not the enemy. You want to, you want to love them. But remember what love is? You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. If you're at that union, after I do, you are rejoicing in unrighteousness. I mean, unless you go to the wedding and say, and they say, is there anyone out there that has a reason why this couple should not come together? You say, yeah, I do. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. This is wrong. It's against God. It's against nature. It's against God's... I mean, if you're willing to do that. But don't celebrate it. This is where... You know, we've all these years we've talked about suffering as a Christian. And we always come up with hard illustrating. And we always go back to the uh, Middle East and Far East and say, well, those are Christians who are suffering. Yeah, we're not having any stones thrown at us. And we have a hard time trying to... This is where I think one of the big ones is going to come. Right here. Because you're going to have to stand for truth and that's going to cause suffering in your own life. With your friendships and your relationships and your families. But I, I encourage you to do this. Let me give you another question. That, is it right for a Christian to bake a cake for a gay wedding? <laughs> I can't answer that with a yes or no. Okay. I, I, but I'll tell you what is sinful. What is sinful is not baking the cake, but participating, and this is the key word again, in the celebration. That's what's sinful. It's not baking the cake. Because I wouldn't want to have Jenny, who works at Wegmans, in the bakery, think that she has sinned. Do you still bake cakes? Once in a while? Okay. That she (laughs) thinks, should have asked her ahead of time, that she thinks she's sinning when a gay couple comes in and buys that cake that she has just prepared. No more than I would 
I, I hope she doesn't think she's sinning if some guy that's shacking up with his girlfriend comes in and buys one of her cakes, right? They're sinners, but they're not, she's not celebrating it. What's happened in our society, though, is, see, again, it's not just toleration, it's celebration. It's not enough just to tolerate. Our society demands that you celebrate, and if you do not celebrate, if you're one of those dissenting voices, there will be pressure on us, right? But it's the celebration. So if, now, how about this? Come in, and the couple says, and I want it this way. I want you to show up to our, our gathering. I want you to cut the cake. I want, you know, there's a lot of other issues. It's not, it's not just the cake. It's the celebration of the cake. But see, this needs to be answered. Why? Because there's going to be other things. Is it right for a Christian to be an architect that is designing a mosque? Or building a mosque. Now again, I'm not going to get into all that. All I'm saying is there's a lot of ethical issues. There's a lot of things that Christians need to think through. And quite honestly, uh, our culture is moving at such warp speed at the moment, and I think it's going to continue. Things are changing so quickly. We need to think through this very quickly and be consistent. I'll give you one other verse, Romans 1, verse 32. It says, Who knowing the righteous judgments of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Now catch this. Not only do the same, but also approve. And the word approve means to applaud. Applaud those who practice them. See, when you celebrate, you're applauding. So Romans 1, 32 is a key passage too. And again... I know it's, it's hard. This is hard. This is hard stuff. I know some of you are, wow, I don't want, but this is what we're called to do. How about F? That's the sixth one down. Is same-sex attraction sinful? Same, now again, same-sex attraction, not behavior. Attraction. And there's a big debate in Christianity right now. Oh, no, you can't do the behavior, but you can be attracted. You can have the desire Let's just go back to the beginning, as it were. I mean, not the beginning, but what is our culture saying? See, our culture is saying this, that, that it's pushing the same-sex attraction as inborn and unchangeable. Bottom line is this. The attraction is from God. God made me this way. This is who I am. This is my identity. You know, all that stuff. In other words, I have not, desi- I have not chosen these desires. These desires are already within me. They're unbidden. They are stubbornly persist. I mean, I'm using all these. And quite honestly, the culture has convinced the culture so much of this that to try to change some with someone with this type of desire, they are actually now calling it psychologically harmful. You're trying to bring someone from uh, same-sex desire over into heterosex desire, that's harmful, psychologically harmful. Do you see what the culture's done? It's hung itself in it with no cure can't help. You can't help me. You can't help them because that's who they are. But again, let's question this. Is it inborn? Is it unchangeable? Again, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does not say... Now, the Bible says that we are all sinners, that we are stained to the very being of our self with sin. Now, that part of it is true, but it doesn't... It, it, it says that we must confront that and see it changed in a person's life. In other words, in other words there's hope there's change. Um, let me read a part. Here's the problem. The Bible teaches that what is natural to us is broken. 
the fall of humanity into sin led to, into a, it led to a fundamental disordering of the world. All of creation is groaning under the curse, uh, uh, the, uh, the curse, the longing for redemption. Nothing in this world is the way it is supposed to be. All of us have a broken sexuality in need of redemption. And I would say all of us. We're not just saying the homosexual. We're all broken sexually. Or to say it a different way, I mean, is there anyone here north of puberty that has never had an immoral, ungodly sexual thought? It could be as simple as this. I wish I wasn't married to her. I wish I was married to her. (laughs) That's immoral, ungodly. You know I mean? We're all in the same boat, which is good. I want to make sure we're all in the same boat. Now we understand the problem. We're all sinners. Our orientations are off. It's everything's broken. We don't live for him. We live for ourselves. Some people live for themselves in different ways. But then they might say, why does it feel natural? Well, just like a child who never witnessed a temper tantrum, but can be proficient at throwing one. See, it's the instinctability of the human heart. It is natural to be angry. It is natural to be selfish. It is natural to lust. It is natural to sin. So when a person says it just feels so natural, well, I go to the Bible, of course it does. (laughs) That's not like, wow, really? I mean, it's in the very constitution of the person. Or they might say this, but I did not choose to be a homosexual. Let me quote someone. I didn't write down it. Most sin, in other words, flesh, works on a level where we do not feel that we, we, are, uh, we self-consciously choose it. We don't, in other words, we don't feel often that we even are, feeling, or excuse me, are choosing what we feel to do. That's the subtleness of sin. Well, I, you know, I, it, I haven't chosen it. Yeah, because that's how the flesh works. See, sin is is part of the human fabric and works on a deep and very, if you want to write this down, sin works at a deep and very quiet level. It uses and manipulates. That's what the flesh does. That's why I say that that chart, when it comes to the Word of God, it's got to be the Word of God that is, and this is how it actually happens, assaults our heart. It is confronting our heart. It is telling what we want and feel and desire is wrong. I'm not saying always wrong. I mean, again, you can have godly thoughts as a Christian. You can, you know, man, worship God. But isn't it amazing in like church? I mean, like you can be worshiping God one minute and thanking God. I mean, let's say not at church, but let's say at home and you had great devotions. And man, I mean, life was just, boy, the sun was shining as I was going to work. And as soon as you walk, within 20 minutes, you feel like you're in the ditch because you just had a collision with one of your coworkers. Well, yeah, that's the flesh raising its head and, you know, subtly working you to be selfish. C.S. Lewis wrote, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who, mu- who, who must lo- lay down his arms. <laughs> who must lay down his arms. He's a rebel. Yeah, we got to see that. But what's the goal? What's the goal in all this? Our goal is this, take a person from who finds their identity in their sexuality, that they would find their identity in Christ. That they, uh, what baptism represents, uh, that we buried with Christ, or die with Christ, buried with Christ, raise again uh, with Christ to newness of life. 
that they find their hope, their salvation, their justification, everything in Christ. Or as 2 Corinthians 5.14 says that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's, that's when the identity moves from here to Christ, that he becomes the center point. He becomes the goal. That's really the goal in all this. And I've got so much, but we're just going to have to pass on. Only to say this final piece, that when you're dealing with the flesh and, and when a person says, well, it feels so natural, it, it feels good. It, I mean, this is, my, this is who I am. This is my identity. Just remember that every time you say no to the flesh, it's painful. Every time you say no to the flesh, it's painful. That's why Paul says that the spirit wars against the flesh. That's war. It's war. It is war. And when you say no to your sinful desires, that's war. That's painful. When you say no to anger in your life, that's painful because you'd like to just blow. Or just let me be covetous for a while. Let me just have me time, God. And he says, no, (laughs) that's painful. Well, let me answer this question, though. Is same-sex attraction sinful? Now, we've already established, as sinners, it's our natural bent. That's how the brokenness of this world works. And the answer is yes. It's not just the behavior, it's the desire as well. It's not just the behavior. The desire, the longing, the craving is also sinful. And it's easy to prove in Matthew chapter 5. Remember Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that whoever looks, that's the word desire, looks at a woman to lust after, excuse me, the word look is this, uh, at a woman to lust, that's the word desire, uh, looks at a woman to lust, desire for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's saying, no, it's not just the behavior because the Old Testament, I mean, they were, the uh, leaders were interpreting the Old Testament. Well, as long you can look, but you can't touch. <laughs> he said, no, you can't touch and you can't look. The desire is sinful. Because, again, both intentional and unintentional. Even if the person says, but it's, I, I'm not trying to invent this. I'm not choosing this. Just say this way. Yeah, but in the, in the Old Testament, both intentional and unintentional sins. In other words, both sins that were choose, chose and sins that were not chosen, like purposeful, were still considered sinful because why? It was against the law of God. That's why it was sinful. It's not you choosing it. It's, it's not the chosenness. It's the fact that it's, it's, it's against conformity to what the law of God says. So it's still sinful. I liked what, uh, let's see here, Sam Alberry, And we've got a great book in the library if you're interested he's a pastor who has had same-sex attractions his entire life that he can remember and he struggles with it saying no just like a heterosexual let's say man struggles let's say with lust and he has to keep saying or a woman let's always say the man but it can be the woman you know these romantic uh, novels that are out there are, are i think is the is a woman's pornography right there Right? I'm not talking about the Christian ones. I'm talking about harlequin romance. Is that right? Yeah. I don't, yeah. Oh, you are like, I don't know. Like, good. Thank you. But the point is, is this. If, if a woman reads a novel and says, boy, I wish I had that type of man, that's unfaithfulness. That's desire, wrong desire. I don't know. How did I get over there? Okay. This is what Sam Elberry said. Again, pastor, same sex, attraction. 
knows it's wrong, says this. The kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity, because he's a Christian. They are part of what I feel, but are not who I am in the fundamental sense. I, f- I am far more than my sexuality. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. Boy, that's a good quote. That's a really good quote. So yes, same-sex attraction is sinful. Now, does that mean, and it's sinful and it's entrenched, does that mean a person with that type of attraction, desire can change? What's the answer to that? Yes. But does that mean that it's going to be easy? No. Just like some of you struggle with worry. And some of you would say, years ago, before I preached on it a number of times and taught it downstairs, you might have even said this, worry is natural. It's something natural. I feel it. I do it. It's not sinful. Where do you see worry is sinful, John? Okay. Matthew 6, do not be anxious. That's the word. Okay, that's, that's the concept. And you work through it. But, you know, that might have been, let's say, four years ago. And you realize that worry was idolatry. Worry was sinful. Worry was something that totally dishonored God as father, as provider. Does that mean that you immediately gave it up? No, you struggle. You struggle to put off, the put on, the changing of the mind. So no, someone's struggling in this area. It, might take, it may take a long time. In fact, Sam has been a pastor for years and he says, listen, there's still the temptation. But I have to keep saying no. Two final ones. We're running out of time. Should the government legislate morality? I just kind of threw this one in. By the way, at this point, I understand you don't, always, you don't all agree with me. Okay, I just ask this. If you don't agree, please find it scripturally. Let's make sure we're based on the word. But should, should the government legislate morality? Actually, the answer is yes. In fact, I would say this. That's about the only thing the government is good for. Okay? Or to say it this way, if a person says and questions that too far, I would say you're actually going towards insanity and in saying it. I mean, don't they legislate morality about drugs, abortion, sexuality? Yeah, those are usually the three that we keep talking about. As Al Morler said this, every government legislates morality because every law has some identifiable moral purpose. Even administrative laws, traffic ordinances, have a moral agenda to ensure public safety, promote order, and prevent accidents. Or to say, you know, like I'm coming to work and let's say I end up having to go down and see Bob McKnight. And it's uh, 8 o'clock on a Monday morning and the buses are turning into the Alfred Allman Central School. And it says 45 miles an hour, but I say, heck with that, they can't legislate morality. I'm going to go 85 miles an hour through there. Well, what, what has just happened? The, sa- the s- public is no longer safe. There's no longer order, and I could very well create an accident, right? So, again, laws prohibiting theft and murder and assault, incest, rape, kidnapping. Again, those are all moral judgments. They're rooted in clear moral conscience. Business laws, I mean, sometimes they get whacked out. I mean, New York City, I'm not sure if it's still in force, 
while back, um, you know, didn't, said, well, homosexuality is okay, but then they started moralizing on supersized cokes, or at least wanted to. I don't know if they ever went through. Well, that's moral, right? Because you give a kid a too big of a coke, 32 ounce, man, you're going to get him fat. See, that's a moral judgment. So should the government legislate morality? Yes, you would expect. That's what they're supposed to do. In fact, you might say, well, well all right, give me the verse. Well, look at Romans 13.3. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. And he ends by saying, for the good. What? For the good of the public. That's what they're there for. It's actually foolish to suggest that government should not legislate morality. It's really actually foolish. It's a person who has not thought through what they're saying. I know what they're saying. They're usually looking at three different issues. Drugs, abortion, sexuality, and saying, don't tell me what to do in those areas. Because they want to do what they want to do in those areas, right? If I want to smoke a, a joint, I don't want you to tell me no. But, again, government does legislate. What we need to pray is that our government, you know, would do it righteously. Righteousness, what? Exalts a nation. So that's what we're praying. And then finally, should I, how should, now this is the last question. This is after moving away from all that. Oh, let me throw one last quickie extra. This is extra. Should you identify race identity the same as sexual identity? I've been noticing sometimes people try to say, well, you know, they gave freedom in race. They should have freedom in sexual identity. Use the same type of scenario as the food illustration. What does the Bible say about race? There is really only one blood. Acts, right? No, you shouldn't. You should esteem others better than yourself. That's a whole different issue. But when you get to sexual identity, what does the Bible say? Wrong. When it comes to same sex, wrong all the time. There's only one true meaning of marriage. One man, one woman, permanent. That's the meaning of marriage. So you use the same, uh, the same formula as you would with gluttony. But how about this? How should I treat other believers who do not think or act as I have determined to do? I mean, how should I, how should I treat the person who disagrees with some part of this and says, well, you might believe that, John. You think that's what the Bible, that's not. I would just speak the truth in love. But you still remain patient and loving and forbearing to each other, Right? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the peace and the bond, uh, unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, right? Ephesians four. No, no, you you want to still because I think sometimes at this point, well, if you don't believe like I, I don't want anything to do with you. Wait a second, we are Christians, same body, same family. Got to be patient. Doesn't mean that I wouldn't confront you. Doesn't mean that I won't tell you the truth. Well, I got to go to the wedding, John. Let me tell you what you're doing right there. You're damaging the name of Jesus Christ. That's going to hurt even when I say it to you. Because I know there's a lot of pain there. But I'll, you know, as a friend, I want to speak the truth. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to diss you as a friend. Let me move on to the last final part, counseling thoughts. And this is taken, by the way, from this little booklet, Homosexuality, Speaking the Truth in Love by Ed Wall. It's been around for a long time. Uh, very good. It's in the in the library. Uh, the other one is this love into light. This is, you know, how does a, a person ch- uh, change from same sex attraction to uh, to? Uh, oh, by the way, we're not trying to get somebody to go from 
homosexual attraction to heterosexual attraction. I read, an, uh, read one illustration where the guy who had same-sex attraction kind of like stood up in a testimony class and said, boy, after all this counseling stuff, I finally am able to lust after women. <laughs> like he had one lustful thought with some, I won't even tell you. But the point is, is this, it's not getting a person from homosexuality to heterosexuality, it's getting somebody from homosexuality to holiness. Holiness is the issue. But that, that's what love and delight deals with. Transforming homosexuality uh, is, is literally written from one of the men who used to be a head of uh, 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 the counseling ministry at, uh, down in, La, or in uh, Louisville. Very, very good men. And then right thinking in a world gone wrong is one chapter. This is put out by the staff at, at uh, Master's College, and it's by John Street on uh, hope, holiness, and homosexuality. So that. A lot of good books. If you want to learn, there's a lot to be had. But anyways, let's say you're in a, involved and you said, you know, I need to be light, I need to, be, I need to love, I need to reach out. Let me just give you the last few thoughts. What should we do? First of all, we must care. We must care. Listening is a great place to start. In other words, asking questions. When I say listen, I'm saying ask questions. Such as, what is it like for the person to struggle with homosexuality? What is it like? I mean, what events shaped his or her present expression? What were the, the, the hurts, and the, most likely the hurts, that were in, was in that person's life that drove them to that place in their life? Uh, was the person sexually abused? Uh, you know, or manipulated in any way? You know, were they a victim? Now, by the way, victim doesn't mean that you excuse their their behavior or their desires, but that being a victim says, you know what, that was, that was part of the path to get comfort. I had someone write to me, and it was exactly right there. I mean, from the congregation, wrote to me and said, you know what, I was victimized, da, 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 and I then went into that type of, this type of situation because it, it, it got me out of that. And I would hope, by the way, I, I'm not talking to them, I'm talking to us. If you have same-sex attraction, if you have this, uh, this uh, need, need for uh, uh, hope as far as uh, growth and direction in your life, that you wouldn't be afraid, of, you know, it's not me. You know, we can talk about this whole thing of homosexuality, and yet a person could be right here struggling with it and say, but well, I'm not going to tell anybody. Well, no, I, I would hope you would want to find hope and help towards Christ. But another question, how has the person been hurt in relationships? How has it been painful to pursue a homosexual lifestyle? What have you had to leave, such as close friends or a community? I mean, they had to sacrifice to, to live that lifestyle. There is a sacrifice. You need to find out. Tell me about it. See, I don't want to be the type of pastor friend that just says, you got to get out of that, you know, trust Jesus. I, I need to find out Man, you've got a lot of hurt. You are one hurting person. And I want to know that. I want to help you, but I want to help you as a dear friend. So I need to listen and love. Yes, you hate the sin, but you love the sinner. Actually, you hate the sin and you want to reclaim the sinner. Number two, we hold firm to biblical truth. 
See, by listening to them and loving them, that does not mean that we put away truth. We still say this is who God is. He is holy, righteous, and just. But he is also merciful, gracious, and he's willing to forgive. He can change you. His grace is sufficient. He wants to bring you to blessing. But blessing is over here. And it's found in Christ. See, again, we don't want to rejoice in unrighteousness by just listening and agreeing and saying, well, I know, that's just... Yeah, and, and it is so tough. I just don't know if the gospel can help you. See, now we've gone over to the experience box. No, the gospel can, is the power of God to salvation. John Batu observed homosexuals, and he said this, quote, homosexuals must not be left with a stern word of condemnation from a distant, repulsed body of people called the church. Instead, they must be faced with a church of Christians with a God who reaches out to bless even through condemnation. I like that. Even through condemnation. God will condemn your sin, but he he wants to rescue you. He wants to show you grace. He wants to bless you. And yes... Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. (laughs) Number three, we must be personally supportive. Do we agree that the church is a hospital? Do we agree that the church is supposed to be a place for broken people? See, we should be the place where those who want to overcome their sin can. We need to be a place that if a person is caught in besetting sins... um, They can come here. And when they come out, by the way, they need support. I mean, again, what is it it like to face the reality of leaving close friends, long-term partners, or a supportive community? Because when you talk to a person who is in that as a homosexual, that's what they have to give up to come to Christ. A lot of us came to Christ as kids, and we came into a family who the parents were like, please receive Jesus. And when you're talking about somebody as an adult and that, they are, they are literally giving up everything they know, including their identity, right? Identity. One man wrote this in that little pamphlet. He said, I, this was a homosexual that came out towards Christ. I ached physically from all the emotional turmoil, said the man who was leaving his partner. But several Christian heterosexual men, again, solid Christian men, made themselves available any time, day or or night. I'm alive today because those guys loved me. Group of men, band of brothers, we will be with you through this process of going from here to Christ. And he's alive today in the spiritual sense. So we must personally be supportive. We need to be, some would use the word advocate. And then finally, proclaim the power of divine grace to transform sinful actions and attitudes. First Corinthians, such were some of you, but you have now been washed. Now you have been sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I mean, grace is sufficient. You can be transformed. But don't look at the transformation of a homosexual as somehow different and special compared to really a transformation of one who just constantly fears. <laughs> constantly in pornography. Constantly into selfishness. And constantly into pride and all those sins that we always mention. No, the path is the same. Oh, there's different other pieces that are different. You have to, each sin has its own But it's all the same direction, the put off, the put on, it's a change of the mind, the desires, the motivations, the actions. 
See, if you put it out like, woo, this is the big one, then I, I'll just tell you right now, you're not going to help. Because you're going to already paint the picture. I can't help you. Well, let's think about the Bible, though, right? You got to be patient. You got to deal with the past. You got to deal with the future. They got to see the transformation, the put on, the put off. But you got to give them the good news. These are, this is all under this transformation. <coughs> Start with the assurance of good news. John Miller said this. Quote, there is no more important factor in transforming life of a homosexual than the confident faith that his or her sins really have been forgiven by God at the deepest root. You've got to push that. The death of Christ paid for your sin. And you receive Jesus and you can be forgiven. It is complete. It's enough. Number four, help them to understand that homosexuality is an expression of an idolatrous heart. It really turns out to be a worship issue. See, that's what I mean by identity. I'm no longer defined by my sin. This is not my identity, my orientation. This is not who I am. I am now one of Christ. I am a holy, beloved saint. I am one of his children. I am one of his heirs. I'm in Christ. In Christ is not a metaphor only. In Christ means I've been brought from the world, death, destruction. I am made part of his body, his family. And then finally, and I'll say it over and over again, give hope. Give hope. Give hope. The the homosexual needs to have hope. (laughs) That this is going to be a long, arduous process, perhaps, but, you, but by the grace of God, you can do it. God is on your side. If you've received Christ, he wants you to do it. He's going to give you the power to do it. And I think part of giving hope is this. Help them to understand what victory looks like. And I want to end there. What does victory look like? Victory looks like this, that your direction has changed, but it's not perfection. It's the direction. It's the direction of your life. That, that has changed. I, I, we, even, our, even you who we struggle, aren't we fellow strugglers? Sometimes I think we get very discouraged because we've got the wrong understanding of what victory looks like. Victory looks like this. I'm going in a consistent pattern of a new direction. But it doesn't mean that sometimes I don't fall. We fall. We stumble, we trip, we do it maybe even weekly, daily. But we get right back up and we have our eyes set on Christ and we start moving, but then we stumble and fall. Define direction. Excuse me, define what victory looks like. And Ed Welsh ends by this. He says, an effective church should have homosexuals. An effective church should have homosexuals. Because the love of Christ, the church, should pursue homosexuals. And through its exaltation of Christ in preaching, corporate prayer, worship, the church should attract homosexuals. It should minister the word of God to those who are already in the church by flushing out the self-deceived, exposing the dishonest, comfort confronting the rebellious, offering forgiveness to the guilt-ridden, and giving hope. The church should also welcome those who struggle with homosexuality but have never been part of the church. The church should, should surprise them with love, a sense of family, the absence of self-righteous judgment. Now again, we're still calling it sin. It should offer truth in a way that is convicting, attractive, and radically different from anything that else that the homosexual has ever heard. May God enable us to fulfill this high calling.
Let's stand as we worship him.